0: EM Cases, EM Quick Hits podcast, where our team of experts and educators bring you clear, concise, and condensed practice-changing knowledge on all those EM topics you may not be totally comfortable with. Quick, let's get on with it. This is Anton Hellman for the EM Cases podcast. We've interrupted regular programming for a second special edition EM Quick Hits dedicated to COVID-19. I asked a few of my foam friends to share with us their experiences with COVID-19 pandemic and give us a couple of tips while they were at it. This time we've included a quick hit from a resident leader and writer for EM Cases, Andrew Cameron, one from Chris Kiefer describing his amazing deliberate practice free airway safety course. You can get all the materials from EM Deliberate Practice. That's one word, emdeliberatepractice.com. We'll hear from Sarah Gray. We'll hear from a few folks on the EM Quick Hits team, Sarah Reed on the pediatric EM perspective, Emily Austin, and Justin Morgenstern. Thanks so much to all these dedicated educators. My hope is that by hearing about their experiences with the crisis, you'll be better equipped both emotionally and cognitively with these troubling times. But before we get into it, just a quick announcement that we have corrected an error in the podcast that we made about PPE. We had said the see-through type gowns are not protective when in fact some of them are protective. So if you listened to the PPE podcast soon after it was released originally, you would have heard Dr. Masaryk say that those see-through type gowns should be thrown out. She regrets saying this. That statement has been removed at her request, and I'm hoping to have the latest on gowns for COVID 2 in the next COVID update on the EM Cases site. So apologies for any confusion. All right. First up on this EM Cases Quick Hits is Dr. Sarah Gray, who you might remember from our wellness podcast. You might want to listen to that one again for a deep dive into preventing burnout in this crisis. Dr. Gray is an intensivist and EM doc in Toronto and has a special interest in physician wellness. She's given amazing talks around the world on the topic. Let's go.
1: Hey, Anton, it's Sarah. Thanks for having me back on EM Cases, and we are going to talk about wellness during COVID. Let's start by acknowledging that I am not okay right now, and probably you aren't either. No matter where you work, COVID-19 is rocking all of our worlds right now, so I will not make light of how hard this is. For me personally, COVID brings up a lot of my memories from SARS. During SARS, I was working as an ICU fellow in a unit full of SARS patients, and that went on for weeks and weeks, wearing constant PPE, and it was terrifying and difficult And that got worse when I contracted SARS. And then I got quarantined at home in my tiny little condo with my husband. And then it got worse still when I got sicker and was admitted to hospital and underwent a variety of experimental treatments. Clearly, I got better in the end, but I was left with some post-traumatic symptoms that I struggle with at times. And COVID, of course, is triggering all that again. So... To be honest, with all of you out there, I am sleeping like crap and I'm anxious and stressed and it is definitely impacting my cognitive bandwidth. So I am getting seriously strategic about my wellness because it's the only way I'm going to stay sane enough to keep working my eMERGE and ICU jobs. I have a four-step program and it's very easy uh, because those are the only plans that work in a crisis. Step one is to remember that you're normal. Accept that whatever you're feeling, your anxiety, your stress, your fear, this is normal and reasonable in these uncertain times. Remind yourself that you don't have to feel super relaxed and wonderful these days. It's okay to cut yourself some slack. Remembering that it's normal helps us feel better. Step two is to remember that you're not alone. This is a universal problem. Everyone else out there is also struggling in their own unique ways. We are in this together. And remembering this helps people feel better. And while we need to physically distance from each other, we can stay socially connected to all the other people out there. We need to physically distance, yes, but we can stay connected on an interpersonal level. Step three is to make a happy list. Okay. So what's this? This is a list of things that help you feel better as in yes, an actual list. So while you're listening, grab pen and paper right now, you can make your list or take out your phone. If you're digital, you can write a list on there. So let me describe. In my house with my kids, we call these things our happy lists. This is a list of activities that brings you joy or comfort or peace, activities that make you feel refreshed, activities where you feel better after you've done them. And you write down all these things that work for you. I also have, I have a bunch of categories on my list, so I have three big categories, although you don't have to use this. But my first category is for physical wellness. So this includes exercise, getting fresh air, getting enough sleep, having decent nutrition. And so a lot of the things on my list are my favorite ways to exercise, like go for a run uh, or ride bikes with my kids. There's also good options for, you know, snacks I like to eat that are healthy for me, because otherwise in a crisis, I tend to just eat carbohydrates and I'm trying not to gain, you know, 10,000 pounds during COVID. Um, My second category on my happy list uh, is around mindfulness. I personally like to meditate, but uh, there are lots of options that can include whatever version of faith or reflective practice you prefer. So you might like yoga. Uh, you might have a spiritual practice or do prayer. Uh, you could include journaling. You could have a gratitude practice. Maybe you just listen to the birds singing outside for five minutes every morning. But whatever helps you focus on the present moment is key here because that generally helps us reduce our anxieties. And my third broad category on my happy list are things that help my mental and emotional wellness. So these are just simple things I can do at home that I like. Um, So like reading a great book uh, or dancing to my favorite song in the living room, (laughs) doing a puzzle, singing a song. Um... This category for me also includes staying connected to people because we really do need this for our emotional wellness. So on your list, you might want to include some strategies for connecting to loved ones in virtual ways. And I am talking about really connecting, about having real honest conversations about how stressful this is to share what you're really feeling. And if you can't find that sense of connection with the people you know, and you're feeling way off your game, please consider professional help to help get you through this. There are uh, employee assistant programs uh, at at various hospitals. You could see a therapist virtually. Um, you could reach out to your family doc by phone. You could join a support group. But really making sure that you are getting the support you need is vital during this time. And so on your happy list, you write down a bunch of tiny strategies for keeping yourself well through physical wellness, mindfulness, and emotional wellness. And then you're up to step four, which is the last step in my wellness strategy. Step four is where you make your strategy explicit. So in normal times, implicit coping strategies are fine. In normal times, you don't need a reminder to go to the gym or to get enough sleep. You just do it. But in a crisis, the data tells us we need to make our strategies explicit. Otherwise we won't do them. So there are a variety of ways to make your wellness strategy explicit. Number one, you could make a schedule, right? And stick to it and include your wellness strategies on it. People will even go so far as to block times in their calendar for every day for activities that keep you well. I personally, I do this because I'm very calendar driven, but so I block in time to exercise, time to laugh, time to decompress. But the other great way to make this explicit, the real power move here is to tell other people about your happy list. And I'll tell you a a story that illustrates how this works. So in my house, we've all had our happy lists for many years because, well, we've had some bumpy times. Uh, And every once in a while, I think up more activities to add to my list and I write them down. Like I just added planting flowers and finger painting because it turns out I love finger painting uh, and a few other ridiculous things I wrote down last week. Anyhow, we all have these lists. And most of the time, our lists just sit around gathering dust. Mine sits in my office. I don't touch it a lot. And then a couple years ago, I came home from a really awful day in the ICU. And um, I I don't tend to talk about those things a lot with my family. We were having dinner, so I was just keeping pretty quiet. I don't like offloading on my kids. But after dinner, my daughter had clearly noticed because she said, Mommy, are you feeling sad? And, and I said, yeah, you, I'm sorry, I had a, I had a pretty rough day. And she said, no problem. She said, mommy, let's go get your happy list. And she took me upstairs. She took my hand, we went upstairs and we found the list. And then we stood there looking at it together and and she said, so what do you want to do? Let's pick a few things. And uh, we ended up sitting on my favorite couch in the living room, which is on my list, cuddled under all these cozy blankets, uh, which is also on my list, reading our favorite books, because that's on my list, and listening to a really great album. Essentially, we did all of these activities that always make me feel better until I felt well enough that I could start recovering. And so when you write down your list and you let your loved ones know that it exists, you are giving them a roadmap. You are showing them how to support you so you don't just have to do it alone. Many of us have friends and family who want to help us, but just don't know how. They don't know what to do or what to say. You tell them that you have a list and that when you are struggling, they can do some of these things with you. These are the activities that you have selected because they bring you joy or peace or relief. You show them how to save you. So those are my steps. They're pretty easy. Number one is just normalizing. Remembering that you are normal. It is okay. And in fact, very normal to feel pretty stressed right now. Number two Remind yourself that we are all in this together. This is a universal problem. Number three, write down your happy list with any small activity that brings you wellness. Ideally, you write down a lot of options so that in the midst of a crisis, you have many different things to choose from. And then number four, you make your strategy explicit. You make a schedule or you block it in your calendar. And ideally, you tell your loved ones about your list and how they can use it to help you. Getting strategic about your wellness makes a huge difference. Because work is pretty scary these days. So we need to channel our courage. Courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is knowing you're afraid and moving forward anyway. And keeping well helps us show up to make a difference in the world. We've got this. Stay safe out there, everyone.
2: All anyone is talking about these days is COVID. I'll be back shortly with some EBM updates. Spoiler alert, despite all the excitement you might have heard about agents like chloroquine or remdesivir, whatever it is, the treatment of COVID is still just high-quality, supportive care. There is no magic bullet. We just need to do what we are already really good at, but add in some extra stringent infectious control practices. But this quick hit isn't about evidence-based medicine. Anton wanted to gather some clinical experience with this disease, and I wanted to focus on diagnosis. Sometimes this can be really easy. My first diagnosis was somebody who just came in with a cough and a fever and said, hey, my dad has COVID. Not exactly a diagnostic dilemma. But my big concern is that the only thing on my brain, the only thing I talk about, that I write about, that I read about, the only thing right now is COVID. And my concern is that I'm going to miss something else. And in my mind, that risk is somewhat heightened by the fact that COVID can sound an awful lot like P.E. In fact, I've already got this wrong twice. In one patient, I was sure it was a P.E., there was no fever, no obvious sick contacts, exertional dyspnea with a perfectly clear chest auscultation. There was an S1 Q3T3 on ECG and a D-dimer more than 5,000. The CT scan, bilateral, patchy ground glass infiltrates COVID-positive. My other patient was a woman with a travel history: fever, cough, sore throat, and some mild shortness of breath. To me, she sounded pretty infectious and my first test was just to get the COVID swab done. But she'd been sent in with a note about a possible PE, and so a D-dimer had been drawn before I even saw her, and it was positive. So after some debate, we decided to scan her, and she had large bilateral PEs. What can you learn from two cases, just antidotes? Well, maybe not much. I have heard that D-dimer is regularly elevated in COVID, and we definitely don't want to be sending all of these patients to CT scan to overtest to deal with those infectious control issues and the delays. But in my mind, these cases serve as a reminder that even at the height of a pandemic, even when we're overwhelmed and it seems like every single patient has COVID, patients will still show up with their usual medical processes. We need to be careful about availability bias. We have to be careful not to anchor. We still need to take a history and to think and to test when things don't quite fit together, or test when it's really important to get it right in our sickest patients. I would never advocate for over-testing. But I do worry that we might feel a pressure to under-test. We might hear, well, what good does testing do for a viral illness anyway? What is testing going to help? We've got to Goldilocks the hell out of this. Not too little, not too much, just the right amount of testing. And luckily, emergency medicine training is all about making difficult diagnoses in a sea of uncertainty. We were made for this. Trust your training, use your judgment, and keep your eyes out for the many things that could be masquerading as COVID.
3: Here are some of my reflections on working in the current COVID-19 pandemic. It's been really weird working in our emergency department since our COVID assessment center opened across the street from the hospital. You know, without actually having looked at any numbers, it feels like there has just been a lower volume in the past week or so. And I'm trying to make sense of where did all the patients with appendicitis or alcohol withdrawal or DKA... Or even just like retinal detachments, where do they all go? You know, patients who had actual medical problems that required intervention or management. I have had a few sick patients with respiratory distress come in, and this new reality means that we manage these patients as a protected intubation, wearing, you know, all the appropriate PPE. We really do things a lot more slowly, despite staring at a sat of 81% in a 32 year old male who's on 15 liters of oxygen. We ensure that there's a clear pre brief with our team who's going to be in the room. And the truth is that neither of these two patients were tough airways. They really weren't, but they were still stressful for obvious reasons. The weirdest part for me about these two cases is that both of these patients have now been tested. Their COVID swabs are back and are negative. And I understand the concept of, one, that the test could be negative, but also that there's possible false negative swabs for COVID out there. And that just is a little bit disconcerting to me. And it makes me feel crazier than I kind of want to right now. I just feel this urge to rely on the science and and have the data, you know. I am certainly the beneficiary of very strong leadership in our emergency department. People who are forward-thinking and aggressive. And I'm very grateful for the protocols and processes that have been developed for intubation and transporting patients. I'm grateful to a bunch of people who have spent time developing infographics and simulations to get us ready and prepared. On a shift, I'm trying to be vigilant, you know, with all the PPE. But I got to admit that this type of attention to minute details, it just doesn't come that easily to me. And I have had to recognize that. And I think that the answer is to just really slow things down. In my other position at the poison center, it's kind of interesting, we've witnessed a shift in our calls. And again, I haven't actually looked at numbers here, so this is anecdotal, but poison center nurses, are the people who respond to calls, are telling us that they're getting a lot more calls about kids who are exposed to cleaning products and hand sanitizers compared to before. The staff toxicologists who work at the poison centers, we've agreed to to take on more consults and try to divert eMERGE visits for presentations that you know, could be potentially borderline and, and would typically be sent to the eMERGE for, for monitoring. We're going to try to divert these from the eMERGE and try to manage these patients at home and follow them up. Finally, just in terms of me wearing my poison center hat, I've made sure to review the management of chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine exposures and poisonings, just in case we get more cases. You know, both of these two drugs are getting a ton of attention for the treatment of, of COVID-19. And uh, there have been reports since some of the hype picked up in the past week or so about these drugs of overdoses in places like Arizona and Nigeria as well. So I felt it was prescient to kind of be on top of it. I'd say that on a final note, I'm doing what I can do to stay okay. It all feels really weird. I feel an anxiety in in our eMERGE department that's unfamiliar and yet makes complete sense. I kind of really wish that there was more evidence to help me make sense of everything. I wish I had more numbers and more data. You know, I I live in Toronto and how many people are admitted to ICUs right now in Toronto? Or I don't know why I care to know that number, but I do, or I feel like I, I do. Sometimes I look at numbers in other places, however, and the truth is it doesn't really help. It can kind of feel scary. I worked a few days ago and, you know, we aren't swabbing the general public here. And I admit that I wish we were for many other reasons, but appreciate the idea that these are limited resources. I sent a 42 year old lady with a cough and a fever home and she was fine to go home. I gave her A bunch of papers explaining why we weren't swabbing her and instructing her to self isolate. Some of the papers explain what self isolation really is. This lady had a two year old and an eight year old kid at home, as well as her husband, and she works at a grocery store. And I have no idea how she is actually going to self isolate. So, where I'm at now, if I believe numbers and predictions, is in a place where things will probably get a lot worse. And so as of sort of where I'm at today and, and figuring out how to sort of cope on a day-to-day basis is that I'm going to try to own the fact that my interaction with that 42-year-old woman is maybe going to be the one interaction she has with a doctor who will tell her that she has or maybe has coronavirus. And so it's on me to make that interaction as present and as meaningful as possible. You know, it's a bit overwhelming to me to try to think about the practical implications of what self isolation really means. So I have to sort of slow down and give her the time, process that a bit too. I mean, it's important for her safety and those around her. And finally, I need to tell her that she's going to need to come back if she gets more short of breath or more unwell. And I just really hope that this doesn't happen.
4: Hi there, it's March 30th, and here's a PEDS update on COVID 19. I want to especially thank my division chief, Dr. Gina Netto, for her input and for her leadership over this period of time. So, right now, pediatric emergency departments across Canada are pretty quiet, and this is a phenomenon that we've seen globally with often more than a 50% decrease in patient volumes, probably due to a mixture of Families actually following the directions to leave emergency departments for emergencies, fear and anxiety about exposing their kids at the hospital, and then overall less of a viral burden with kids not being at daycare or school, and the physical distancing and better hand washing. In the last few weeks, we've also seen the expected decrease in winter viral activity like RSV and flu. At my hospital, we haven't admitted a COVID-positive patient yet, but we've admitted a lot of patients with respiratory illnesses that have been screened. We do have a community assessment center that's near the hospital where I work that's seeing about 300 adults a day and 30 kids a day for screening. So as you know, in pediatrics, the disease severity seems to be low, and this may be due to the lack of the ACE2 receptor in young kids, or a decreased immune response leading to the ARDS. We don't really know for sure. In the last few days, we've heard about a couple of case reports of death or severe illness. There was an infant that died in Illinois that was reported yesterday, but we don't know any details. And my PICU colleagues have actually heard of some teens being admitted with ARDS to PICUs in the UK, US and Ireland. So we're going to have to follow this really closely we are definitely worrying and wondering about the kids with chronic lung disease and neurodevelopmental issues, immunocompromise, the kids that we see really commonly in a PEDS emergency department. But specialists at our hospital have reached out to their global networks and there really is no report of a significant burden of disease and even these at-risk kids. So overall, uh, there are no reports or evidence that So overall, there's no report or evidence that COVID causes bronchiolitis, croup, or even asthma exacerbations. And so when we're looking at these common viral syndromes that we see a lot, uh, we're overall trying to minimize our nebulized treatments and maintain the standard of care. So if we're thinking about bronchiolitis, we're going to do supportive care as usual. I'm going to minimize, if not Just stop using epinephrine nebulization, given that this medication doesn't work that well. The effect's transient, and it doesn't really impact the course of the disease. So continue to do nasal suctioning. That's not considered aerosol generating. Um, We're going to send these kids home if their SATs are greater than 90 or more. We're going to be able to send these babies home if their SAT is 90% or higher, as long as the distress is manageable and the feeding's going well and they're well hydrated. And otherwise, as usual, they need to be admitted, and those admitted babies will be tested for respiratory viruses and for COVID. When we think about croup, we're going to do the usual treatment. So dexamethasone for mild symptoms, dex with a period of observation for kids who have moderate symptoms, sometimes sort of two to four hours until the dex kicks in, and then dex with epinebulization for severe croup. These are the kids who have strider that's often biphasic, they'll have in-drawing, they'll be agitated. So if you have to give an epinebulization, you need full airborne precautions. A colleague at one of the community hospitals in town asked me about using IM epinephrine in lieu of epinebs, and really there's no evidence for intramuscular epi in this setting. We have actually requested epinephrine MDIs for our hospital which are available on special release. And that will be something that if we get them, we'll be trying to use epi MDIs, but I know not everybody's gonna have those. So overall, I think it's probably better to do the usual treatment for croup that's really been well studied. If you can get epi via MDI, some of the pediatric hospitals are gonna be trying that, so we'll have to see how that goes. And otherwise, using an Epi nebulization treatment for your severes, with a full airborne precautions in a negative pressure room, if you have that available. If we're thinking about asthma, we should use MDIs on pretty much every asthma patient. That's been really well studied. It's just as good as a nebulized treatment, and it can be used in mild, moderate, and severe. If your patient needs extra oxygen, you can do that for, via nasal prongs and continue to do MDI. But if the child is really, really unwell and you need, feel like you need to increase the respiratory support, you can certainly go back to nebulized treatment. But of course, you're gonna need airborne precautions in that kid. We really don't have any data on COVID and severe asthma despite having reached out to our national networks. So ventilatory support is a bit more problematic in kids. Most kids that are going to need ventilatory support over this period of time are not going to be COVID positive, but they're going to need it for some other reason. So the standard respiratory illnesses, sepsis, trauma. And so this makes this having a broad based across the board recommendation about early intubation, not as straightforward in kids. So I think it's unlikely you're going to see guidelines that we're like, we're seeing in adults uh, for the pediatric age group. That said, I think if you have a teenager who's presenting with ARDS you should follow those adult guidelines because I think that they would apply in the bigger kids. But in the smaller kids, we really need to balance this protecting the staff from aerosol generating procedures, such as CPAP, for example, um, with not causing patient harm by inappropriately intubating a kid with bronchiolitis or asthma. In terms of general principles, high flow nasal cannula is considered more safe than CPAP from an aerosolization perspective. And it's always a reasonable first choice. If you're gonna do CPAP, you're gonna wanna use a non-vented face mask with a tight seal, HEPA filter attached to the exhalation port for transport of the patient as well as ongoing treatment to minimize airborne spread. And of course, airborne precautions for anyone getting invasive or non-invasive ventilation. You have to remember that kids who are intubated often require suctioning and bagging. So it's quite difficult to maintain a closed circuit. In the last week, we've had a couple of patients with severe respiratory illness that required full resuscitation, and our approach is to do this in one of our negative pressure rooms that's been repurposed as a resuscitation room. We have our full resuscitation equipment in the ante room um, separated per weight range in bags. There's a nurse in full PPE in the ante room passing in the equipment. We're using a speakerphone for communication between the ISO room and the ante room, We have a nurse designated as a safety officer who's making sure everyone's in full ppe and uh, doing crowd control the intubation is being done by the most experienced operator so at our hospital anesthesia has actually taken this role over we're trying to minimize ppv by oxygenating using a non-rebreather rather than bagging if you can get away with it doing an rsi with uh, paralysis everyone on the team is in full airborne ppe And then for transport to PICU, a clean team in full PPE comes to transport the patient to PICU. A couple of other issues that have come up that you may have seen. One thing is just always remember to screen the parents as well as the patient for symptoms and contacts too, because you're going to be in the room with both of them. Data from Wuhan suggests that about 30% of PEDS COVID cases have GI symptoms. So you really need to remember COVID in the setting of diarrhea and vomiting as well. The Canadian Pediatric Society followed up the WHO statement on the use of NSAIDs in COVID and have endorsed the use of both ibuprofen and acetaminophen in fever for these kids. There is a bit of a debate going on about whether you need to do a throat exam in kids with a lot of practitioners deciding to forego it because they feel like it's unlikely to provide much further information and it potentially increases your risk of exposure. So I leave it to you to decide whether you think the throat exam is indicated depending on the chief complaint. And lastly, there was an early study looking at nine neonates from Wuhan that suggested there was no vertical transmission to babies born to COVID-positive mums. But last week, there was a new study in JAMIPEDES looking at 33 neonates that were born to COVID-positive mums, and three of them ended up having symptomatic infection. There were no deaths in that population. Thanks very much, and stay safe, everybody.
0: And now for a word from our sponsor, Metricade, the experts on scheduling systems. Metricade would like to let you know that they are helping EDs, urgent care clinics, and other provider groups during the COVID-19 pandemic. They've been helping their existing customers set up additional call schedules and screening clinics. They're also working on setting up province-wide virtual walk-in clinics, which will go live on March 30th. And they're doing this for free during the outbreak. Metricade's giving these organizations access to their web-based tool, but more importantly, they're doing all the work building and managing these schedules, helping to build capacity and resilience in our system, doing what they do best. If you're struggling with the logistics of adding coverage to your existing schedule, or you're setting up completely new schedules for screening or treatment, let them help you out. They can get a new schedule up and running in a matter of days, leaving you to take care of other matters. Metricade really wants to help you out during this crisis. Let them give you a hand check out metricade.com slash emcases and get in touch with them today.
5: Hi, everyone. Thanks very much for having me on, Anton. I'm thrilled to be here. I'm Andrew Cameron. I'm one of the PGY4s in the FR program at U of T, and I just wanted to take a slightly different tack than the amazing guests you've had so far. To date, we've heard lots about the medical management of COVID from some absolute pros we've learned about. Uh, there was protected code blues, we had modified intubation techniques and tons of other literally life-saving considerations when it comes to managing the sick COVID patient. But what I wanted to talk about today was something a little bit different. I wanted to talk about what I call the COVID information fire hose. So way back in January, uh, I think those of us who were even a little bit plugged in to the um, mostly the social media community at the time started to notice this trickle of information that was coming out about this new virus, at the time it was being called the Wuhan virus. As the virus spread, so too did the information about the virus and so did the misinformation actually. What felt like maybe like a day or two later, which was probably actually closer to weeks or months, that trickle of information is now an absolute tsunami. So let me give you an example. I'm currently part of about six WhatsApp groups that share hundreds and hundreds of messages a day. As a resident, I'm getting almost daily communication from all the hospitals we're affiliated with, right? So that's Sick Kids, North York General, Sunnybrook, St. Mike's, UHN, Royal Victoria, and that's just the hospitals. Then I get communication from the postgrad medical education office, the OMA, the CMA, the CPSO, like my grocery store, Starbucks. I got an email from Second Cup telling me what they were doing to manage this. The list just literally it doesn't end. And That's just the stuff that's directed to me. So on the other side, on the public side, what we're seeing is there's these 15, 20,000 doctor Facebook groups springing up um, just for Canadian doctors, just about COVID. And there's thousands and thousands of disorganized comments every single day. Twitter actually recently uh, was mined for an incredible statistic, which is that there's 100 million COVID tweets per day. So what this amounts to is basically the fact that now keeping up with COVID... Just the information itself is a full-time job onto itself. Forget about, you know, doing the job of an ER doctor, which is <laughs> tricky enough at times. Now we're talking about spending hours and hours and hours to make sure you've got your finger on the pulse of the disease. And also you've got to consider, you know, what the hospital's policies are. And these seem to change every few days. Actually, the craziest example is that I've actually seen a patient in the ER, then re- received an email with uh, PPE revisions. Then I've gone in the very next patient with different equipment on because the rules had changed in between the encounters. So here's my solution. I follow three rules in order to keep on top of this without getting overwhelmed. Rule one is I get one hour per day outside the hospital to learn about COVID. This is like protected, structured time. I'm talking about sitting at my computer directly and deliberately studying as if almost as if I have an exam in a few days. This is purposeful. I set a timer. After my hour is up, I'm done. That's it. I turn it off and I disconnect. Rule two is I pick only my top six sources. And this is what I go to for COVID information right now. So far, I've broken them down to direct, which is one, text, which is two. I use two text sources, one audio source, a social, and one big picture. So... Let's go through them. The first source is direct. This is correspondence I'm getting from hospitals. The next category is two text-based resources. And I use, uh, firstly, I use UpToDate. The COVID-19 page is free for everybody right now if you don't have a subscription. And the second text-based source I use is to brush up on my critical care skills. I'm watching quickICUTraining.com page closely. And I'm just giving myself the refreshers I need in order to take care of some pretty sick patients. The next one is a trusted audio source. I think I'd get booted from this episode if I didn't say EM cases, but obviously wasn't paid to say that, but I really do. This is my source for uh, for my audio information. So for the trusted social source, uh, this is a little bit trickier because it involves definitely some stewardship here. Uh, But I use Twitter. I'm not talking about going down the Twitter rabbit hole. I'm talking about the top five or six doctors who I respect. I've been following them for a long time, and I know they contribute meaningfully to the dialogue. Uh, If you need a starting point, you don't have that list ready. You can navigate actually to a link that we'll post in the the show notes. A Forbes list came out uh, just mid-March, actually, that identified the top 50 most essential people on Twitter to follow during COVID-19. And uh, it's a great list, I think. And then the last one is big picture. So I like a big picture source. I've personally chosen the Globe and Mail here, but it's completely up to you. Choose whatever source you know and trust. Someone, hopefully, who you find uh, to be constructive and informative. And then the last rule, which is definitely the most important rule for me, is to just mute the noise. Get to be best friends with your smartphone's least used feature, uh, do not disturb mode. if you don't have that as a native feature on your phone, there's tons of apps that do it for you. For me, I've got one called Zen mode, and it just blocks absolutely everything for a certain amount of time. All those WhatsApp groups that you're part of that are not actually effective and just kind of end up amplifying the noise, get to know and love that mute feature. So that's it. that's uh, I, I think that the by limiting your time, throttling your information sources, muting unnecessary conversations and periodically re-evaluating your sources to make sure you haven't missed anything, obviously, you can actually gain some sanity. I mean, that is until someone creates a tool for doctors that organizes this massive torrent of information and becomes a one-stop shop for practical info and pushes only the most actionable high-yield information to doctors. But incidentally, that's actually what I've started working on with a few health tech buddies of mine if this episode resonates with you, if this kind of makes sense, if you're trying to limit that fire hose, you can just check us out at pendemos.care. That's P-A-N-D-E-M-O-S dot care, C-A-R-E. Uh, and we'll link it in the show notes as well. We're trying to solve this problem in real time. We're trying to provide doctors with a free platform that just crowdsources all the best information out there, organizes it extremely well, and uh, pushes out the best COVID hacks in real time. So that's it. Thanks very much for having me on, Anton. I hope that was useful. Uh, There's nothing like telling people to avoid the noise as I'm producing more noise. The (laughs) irony is not lost on me there. Uh, But hopefully this was useful. Hopefully this gives you the tools uh, that you need to kind of limit the COVID firehose right now and focus on providing high quality care and remaining
6: sane during this, this very difficult time for all of us. Thanks very much. Hi, Anton. It's Chris Kiefer. I'm an emergency physician at St. Joe's Health Center and the co-director of our ED simulation program. So I wanted to talk to you for a few minutes today about a course that I've developed over the last week or so, which focuses on the COVID intubation. Now, as emergency physicians, we are uniquely well-qualified to take care of the physiologically difficult airway. The problem is that we need to become astronauts. Now, let me explain that a little bit. We have to take this difficult procedure and put it on something resembling the International Space Station. Bear with me here. We've got to get into PPE that somewhat resembles a spacesuit. We have to transition through an airlock into a negative pressure isolation room. We need to stabilize and intubate the patient. We need to doff our equipment and exit again. We need to do all of this while avoiding contamination so that we can keep ourselves and our colleagues well. I feel it's my personal responsibility to flatten the healthcare worker curve. And so I've decided to develop an astronaut training program. Okay. All joking aside, we have one week to teach our healthcare teams how to perform a spacewalk. And so the course I've developed takes the spacewalk and breaks it down into digestible components. Individually, these micro skills are manageable and can be drilled to a high level of proficiency. These skills are basic and include things like hand hygiene, which we drill through something called the COVID scrub. Now, I'm sure most of you have been certified by your healthcare educator in your hospital on donning and doffing, which probably means that you've put it on and taken it off once under their supervision and received a check mark in a box. This is clearly not sufficient. We drill the ins and outs of doffing until it becomes muscle memory. Team and equipment organization is an essential piece of the puzzle here. Remember, we have to get a hot team into the room with all of the equipment they're going to need in a single go. And so we practice, and we drill, and we drill again until it's smooth. Finally, an integration exercise pulls this all together and builds the team's confidence. I've been deeply touched by the enthusiasm of my colleagues, particularly a colleague of mine who is a veteran of SARS-1. Seeing his eyes well up with tears when he talked about the need for us to look after each other is a moment I will never forget. If you're interested in putting on this course, you'll find the curriculum, instructor notes, scheduling tool, and site logistics documents freely available on EM cases. We're all in this war together. We've got each other's backs. We can do this.
0: As a surprise bonus on this EM Quick Hits, we have two experts on human factors in medicine. You've heard them before on the show, Dr. Chris Hicks, trauma team leader and emergency doc at St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto, and Dr. Peter Brinley, neurointensivist in Alberta. They'll give us some tips on human factors, communication, airway checklists, and more. Take it away.
7: Well, Pete, how you doing, my friend? You've written a couple of really important pieces uh, in the past few weeks, most recently in the National Post. And prior to that, a piece in uh, BMJ, just about the importance of looking after one another and checking in during this really challenging time. How are you doing and how are things going for you?
8: I'm doing as well or as badly as anyone else. Thanks thanks for asking, Chris. And, and maybe that's the biggest take-home point that, you know, we've talked about resilience in burnout talks. We've talked about it in resuscitation but we actually need to talk about it in terms of cross-monitoring and being each other's COVID friends. Um, I probably went through every stage of Kubler-Ross's denial, bargaining, anger, and I've slowly reached acceptance. And so I, I wanted to write that down because if I'm going through it, then others are too. The anticipatory anxiety, I think for everyone, has been horrendous. For those that haven't yet, Run into COVID it, on some strange way, it's actually freeing and liberating once you get in there. But the sense of what is coming and how do I arm myself and can I learn the whole of virology, public health, and the physics of aerosols and droplets in two days, I think is driving people berserk. So I'm doing okay after originally being quite upset with my initial response, if I can be very upfront with people. Uh, I sort of started with anger, almost a sort of sense of self-righteous, oh, for goodness sake, I don't have the cognitive bandwidth for this. You're a good friend, and so is everybody listening to this. I've never been prouder to be a healthcare worker, and I want to hear from everybody.
7: Good on you for recognizing that, right? Like one of the first sort of challenges with gaining some sort of sense of emotional and therefore situational control is an appraisal of your current sort of emotional state, You said in your piece, um, I just want to highlight this because I really, really like it, a pandemic or any disaster, this is your BMJ piece, highlights that healthcare is more than just a machine that helps ill people get better. It is an instrument for social cohesion, distributive justice, and economic viability.
8: The best way to get through this is going to be through controlling human factors, and those same things, situational awareness and decision-making and team cohesion, leadership and followership, and we better get into talking about followership too, and communication is actually how we're going to get through this. We're going to beat 500 kilodaltons of evil RNA virus by using what makes us uniquely human, or we're going to lose because we allow the flip side of our human frailties to get the better of us. So we got to hunker down and beat this damn virus. And we will. As one of my colleagues pointed out, you know, we're all currently working
7: in system two decision making where we have no script for what's happening. This is not familiar territory for us. So everything seems hard. Everything seems labor intensive. Everything is sapping up extra cognitive bandwidth. And a lot of it is really just that process of our minds trying to make sense of a novel clinical and logistic scenario. That's really, really challenging. I think those two concepts bear particular attention, the importance of sense-making and the importance of cognitive offloading during periods that are uh, uh, challenging or unfamiliar. And so Yastro, I was doing, um, doing all right, doing all right just finding all the ambiguity challenging And I had my first case a couple of nights ago of a protected airway. That was the exact scenario that I worry about, which is a patient who uh, came in, screen positive for FRI, uh, was placed in a room, and then promptly arrested. So an unannounced, unanticipated arrest. And I have to say, this is one of the first times in a while where I've really had to draw on uh, that sense of self-appraisal, that sense of self-preparation that can be so challenging during stress i found myself at the head of the bed in a very chaotic situation with a team that was kind of scrambling to get organized and co-oriented and for the first time in a really long time standing there looking at the glass doors closed and 20 eyes watching me thinking through the steps uh, the complex steps of a protected airway i felt my heart rate go up and i felt my hands get clammy and i felt myself starting to think Oh, God, what if I pass out? God, it is a little bit hard to breathe inside this mask. And for the first time in a very long time, I had to very deliberately apply, uh, I guess, what comes first in the step up approach to uh, the pre-primary survey, which is self-appraisal and self-preparation. I felt my feet on the br- on the ground. I felt myself centered. I took some slow, deep breaths, not too deep under the circumstances, but some controlled breaths. And interestingly enough, this was all timed to when we were pushing rock uranium. When we push rock, we have a protocol now to watch the clock for at least a minute to make sure, sure that the patient is paralyzed because the last thing you want in a protected intubation is a cough. And watching that clock for a minute and breathing and thinking through all that was one of the most calming things that I think I've ever done in a resuscitation. And from there, and this is not simply uh, just due to that, But that allowed, I think, the next steps in the process, which was the actual mechanics of the intubation, to proceed really smoothly. So you've heard others talk about the importance of beat the stressful breathing, uh, visualizing, and certainly I did a a lot of on-the-spot mental rehearsal during that minute of watching the clock. Self-talk, talking myself through the procedure, talking myself through next steps and contingencies. And then focus refers to a a keyword or a cue word. Mine is steady. And I just very quietly said under my breath to myself, steady. And in that minute, went from a state where I felt like I was going to fall over to a state where I felt psychologically prepared for what was next. So that was a really interesting exercise. And I think it highlights the, the point of self. And we'll get to the team preparation stuff when we talk uh, COVID acronym. But um, self-preparation, uh, to me, has been kind of the crux of this. And, and, and for the first time in a long time, has presented a real challenge to me in terms
8: of what comes next. Humility is the first step and self-compassion is probably the next step. You know, Sarah Gray's talked about failure friends. Other people are talking about COVID friends. We need to be each other's life support, if you'll excuse the, uh, the horrible metaphors. The next sort of step after
7: self-preparation is team and environmental preparation. And this is the part that uh, people are going to find challenging and unfamiliar I think it's important to remember that if you're talking about a protected airway or protected code blue, and I know George Kovacs has already done a a, a recording uh, on this with Anton, so we won't get into the mechanics too much. But these are still airways like you've seen before. You're not going to do laryngoscopy and see three larynxes and you have to pick the right one to intubate or the patient's going to die. These are still the airways you're accustomed to. It's everything else around it, the PPE, the preparation, the non-contamination, the protected airway process that's going to trip you up and make you afraid and, and, and make you feel unsafe and uncomfortable. And so to that end, everything you can do to cognitively offload yourself so that you can focus on the task at hand, so that you can shift the appraisal from threat to challenge is going to be of benefit. And so your COVID checklist is, is meant to speak to uh, that. And why don't we start walking through that um, with that notion of offloading in mind?
8: Well, let's, let's do that. A couple of caveats first. Firstly, you know, many of us, if I can paraphrase what you're saying, feel like first-year residents all over again. And if that helps in any way, it means that everything we do also has to increase team empathy. It might be one of the biggest lessons we take away from this. We've done simulations, and it was extremely useful, but mostly for team cohesion. Now, we went through those team simulations, and Part of the reason we did ours, part of the reason we developed COVID was because we realized we were going to have to give up a little bit of our autonomy. This old doctor idea of, listen, I wear whatever gear I want and I ask for whatever drugs I want. In a situation where you are cognitively okay, might be fine. But this is dangerous, perilous, unfamiliar ground for all of us. So checklists Should be cognitive offloaders, not decerebrate. They should be six, seven items, or hopefully less, because that's what the human brain can manage. And perhaps the Biggest thing is there's a couple of things different about COVID, but not that many things. Once you get past your first one or two intubations, you'll be okay. So with that in mind, let's go through this quickly because, as you say, the airway mechanics have been covered, but let's emphasize the human factors. So number one, C, you're coordinating. Who will do what and when? I see you people particularly, and I have to own this, have been very bad at doing crew briefs. These pre-briefs are done outside of the room, something that ICU people haven't been used to. We congregate around the bedside. Typically, we can't do that anymore. You do a pre-brief where you assign roles and also work out the minimum number of people you can have in the room, which is hopefully only three and only is one of the O's. You assign buddies. One of the biggest changes here is that we're having cross-checking, cross-monitoring, and buddies. And here we go with the pun. Apparently, it first came out of Seattle. We've talked about safety officers. We've talked about lieutenants, lieutenants that are now empowered to say, stop, doctor. You haven't put your gear on properly. You haven't taken off your gear properly. Those people we're calling dofficers in my institution because we love a good pun. But the thing we have to get across is that those people are incredibly important and are empowered to speak up. Teamwork and task work are different things. But you know what? We have typically always, in times of stress, reverted to doctor knows best. And doctor is a very useful member of the team, but not the only member of the team. I
7: just want to pick up on a couple of things you said that I think are incredibly relevant. And if I can maybe overlay uh, how we've broken down our protected airway process from a human factors point of view, you have to break it down into something more manageable. And we've chunked up our protected code blue, our protected airway into three steps, a pre-brief, an airway checklist, which we'll get to, and then a a, a transport uh, review before the patient moves. And I have to say the biggest thing and the most important thing and the biggest change from our current practice is that notion of a structured pre-brief. Arguably, we should be doing this for every airway anyway, but we have developed a process and visual aids that the team outside the room before entering has to step through, uh, just as you've outlined, uh, Pete, to organize. Now we're kind of on the T and E, the team and environmental preparation part of the process, uh, so that the team is organized, the personnel are organized,
8: the roles are allocated uh, before you walk in the room. So we've done coordinate, you collect all the equipment at the bedside. You do not want people donning and doffing as they go in and they go out. And then you have a colleague outside of the room available to help and already wearing a PPE, or if they're the dofficer, engaging you with signs, symbols, banging on the glass, talking through the walkie-talkie.
7: That kind of covers O with the correct people in the room, who's outside the room checking. You know, the, the bit about obstructing the ETT with a clamp gets a bit into the mechanics of things, but I can tell you again, from, from a human factors point of view, you know, that self-talk and self-preparation, uh, even in the moment can be very helpful to remind you of things like that. So self-talk can kind of be one of two things. You can you can say positive affirmations to yourself, like you got this, we got this, we're going to be fine. Uh, or, you know, for a procedure, you can be talking through the process in your head. I will in- insert the video laryngoscope, not too, uh, too great a depth that I can see the first tracheal ring. I will obtain my view on the screen. I will insert the tube. I will not bag until the cuff is up and connect directly to the ventilator. I will clamp the tube um, for all disconnects, et cetera, et cetera. And so those things are covered uh, in the mechanics of O and uh, V in the acronym with things like video laryngoscopy uh, and verification. But the, the self-talk side of things for me was incredibly important in making sure that I don't drop any of
8: those elements. So... We're verifying cheap placement uh, with an end title. Isn't that the mechanics? No, it isn't. An end title is a closed loop communication system. Yep. Well, now
7: we're into, into kind of step two of the process, which is a detailed checklist Uh, that covers all of these steps. And again, without getting too much into the mechanics, these are the little things that you're likely to forget. So it's a call and response checklist. This is different from the model we've set up for the pre-brief where it's more sort of discussion-based about what's to happen next and preparation and planning. This is now things like BVM ready with filter in position, end title ready to go. Yes, we will not bag prior to uh, the cuff is up and we will connect directly to the ventilator if appropriate. So it's a call and response checklist. And it's not done by the person at the head of the bed. The person at the head of the bed or the people, usually an RT, uh, an RN, and an MD are all talking through in response to what the other individual carrying the checklist is is requesting. These are the small things that you're going to forget. And you need a way to, to offload that so that they don't get dropped in the heat of the moment.
8: Now, one of the things I'd like to emphasize from a human factors point of view is there's a difference between data, information, and meaning. And so, you know, as the old line goes, if a man owns one watch, he knows the time. If a man owns two watches, he's never entirely sure. So we've got to be very careful with the data that we share and make sure it is informative and full of meaning. So you've got a sat monitor in the room. Most places... Are asking that the sat monitor, uh, sorry, that the sat reading not be shouted out every few seconds and certainly not be shouted out in a sort of patronizing, the sats are 80 doctor way. Now, instead, you go from data to information to meaning. In other words, the sats are 80, they're still dropping, therefore, you need to do something different. The sats are up to 80 therefore keep doing this we've got this team and there's a big difference the phrase that i like to add in is your saturations
7: are 90 percent. i will let you know when they get to x and that way the person knows one you're not going to hear from me until something else happens and two i'm going to translate the meaning of that for you when it does happen so you don't have to think about it anymore if you're the airway operator and secondarily as you point out it's not just to relay that information, but I always believe that it needs to come with a recommendation. Either what can I do to help? Or I would suggest we pause now and do X. Um, Because again, remember the person who's listening to you is uh, probably overloaded at that point anyway. And if you just throw data at their forehead, it's going to bounce off and land on the floor. Whereas if you make a recommendation or an offer to help, and this, it's much more likely to have an impact The saturations are X and therefore I recommend uh, that we do Y and you can work your way up the COS framework of concerned, uncomfortable safety issue uh, if you need to, but it tends to land better if you're making an observation and a recommendation to assist rather than simply an observation alone.
8: We also have taught people for years, thank you, yes, thank you, no, when a piece of equipment is offered or got it, thanks, and then repeat the line. So got it, thanks, that's our eighty. And, and you need these short clipped comments that, that don't disengage the rest of the team, don't come across as angry um, and allow you to keep moving forward. Now, our anesthetists are wonderful, wonderful colleagues, but some of their communication norms are different and we need to somehow meet in the middle. And so anesthetists that come to help have to first of all clarify whether we've called them to intubate or to be available to help. And, and there is likely a disconnect where they think they're coming in to put in a tube and we think they're there to assist if required. So work that out explicitly. And then the other thing is anesthetists were not raised in an environment where you had to necessarily communicate and sell your idea to other people, whereas we were. And so we probably don't, we probably speak too much for them and they probably don't speak enough for us. And these are going to be the, the tribes that we need to Bring together into one large tribe.
7: So that's kind of taken us through a lot of the VI and a bit of the D here uh, of the COVID acronym. So when we're working through I, we're talking about things like inflating the endotracheal uh, cuff prior to bagging, interrupting as infrequently as possible the circuit and the operator, I guess I would say. And we're, we're moving on to sort of the end of the process here. and. To get to kind of step three of the process we've developed at St. Mike's. Now that you've moved through the airway checklist and then the airway itself, you have to figure out what's happening next and where the patient is going. And we don't always think about that, but this has to be an incredibly explicitly discussed part of the patient's care because you can't just open the door now and roll the patient down the hall to somewhere. There is a ton of preparation and thought that has to go into how this patient is moving and who and under what circumstances and what you need. Um, And so we've solved this particular problem by placing a a large sort of poster-sized transport checklist inside the room. So the team can now work through the steps of, okay, is the patient staying here in the emergency department? Uh, And if so, what are the next steps? Or are they transporting to the ICU or somewhere else? And what are the steps involved there? And so pre-brief airway checklist and then transport preparation our process wise, how we've chosen to break down our protected airway and our, pe- our protected code blue patients. We talk about cross monitoring and cross support in a very technical way with human factors, but in its very basic sense, it just involves looking out for one another and looking after one another. And I think the other key message that's come through in this discussion and also just with our process of preparation is that whatever your process is, you need a process. You need a process to guide you through unfamiliar stuff because we don't have a script for it. And maybe over time we'll develop scripts, we'll develop illness scripts. This will be more intuitive to all of us and it'll get a little bit smoother. But bearing in mind the importance of sense-making of unfamiliar circumstances and cognitive offloading, there are all sorts of tools and principles from human factors that we can draw on to make it easier. I hope everyone keeps well, keeps safe, keeps looking out for one another, keep doing what you're doing. And Anton thank you again for having us on the uh, on the show it was a pleasure
8: Anton thank you so much lovely to have so many good covid friends uh, never been prouder to be a healthcare worker